Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. It is a joy, a privilege to be able to gather, to sing, to pray, to hear the word, to be in fellowship with each other. These are graces that God has given to us to enjoy and to be encouraged by and to be strengthened with. So this is a a profound privilege in our normal, in our ordinary ways. This is yet filled with great, profound privilege to be able to gather like this. I hope that's our heart when we think about that. When we are gathering, we are doing something that is that is designed by God and it's good for our hearts, it's good for each other. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've been in a series this fall looking at the three little letters here in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, often called the pastoral letters, written to leaders in the church, but really also written to the churches, trying to help churches know what does it mean to be the church, what does it look like to be the church, and its significance and structure and character, and that's been somewhat of our template as we've walked through these verses. We've started off by looking at the significance of the church. We spent a few weeks then considering the structure of the church, of members and elders and deacons. And now we're going to begin the rest of our series looking at the character of the church. What is the church to look like when it does gather together? And so that's where we turn our attention now. And we're going to read the first four verses of First Timothy chapter 2 as we consider the character of the church as a praying church. Prayer is to be our character. Let's Consider these words. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we do ask that you be with us and help us as we wrestle with it and think on it and put our hearts on it, that you would be uh, lifted up in our thoughts and our affections, that we would be strengthened in our faith, and that for anybody who is with us this day, whose heart is far from you, O oh God, draw near, bring life where there is none, and God, would you do all of this to your glory and to our good. In Christ's name, amen. So we live under two gravitational poles, two of them. One is what science has observed as the force by which a planet or other body draws objects closer toward its center. While a mystery, we can at least kind of get a, a sense of that description, have some sort of awareness and understanding. Einstein said that gravity is the curving of space-time by all objects in it. And I just think, well, whatever, dude. Uh, just made that up. We live under this gravity every day. It's what keeps us on this planet. The other gravitational pull we live under every day is the pull towards self. The pull that draws all things inward on ourselves, where we make ourselves the center of the universe. Every day that gravitational pull is there. We wake up to it. And just like with that first gravity, the one that keeps us on this planet, 
There is mutual attraction with objects within this world. Objects like maybe health or comfort or acceptance or success, relationships and so forth. We can quickly turn in on ourselves and become self-absorbed. And you know what else? Churches can do the same. We can do that individually. And us individuals all gathered together in a church, we can do that collectively. We can turn in on ourselves. We feel a gravitational pull toward the inside. Well, I have some good news for us today. Prayer is the anti-gravity suit for the church. Prayer is the anti-gravity suit for the church. Church is to be a praying people. And the character of prayer is to lead us. It's to lead us. And there's a couple of ways I want us to see that from our passage. First is, the character of prayer leads us upward in God-centered worship. The character of prayer, being that of a church, is leading the church upward in God-centered worship. We're feeling the pull inward or downward into ourselves, our own circumstances, our own comforts, our own likes. But prayer is is that anti-gravity suit to, to, to catapult us upward. Secondly, prayer is leading us outward on gospel-focused mission. It's, it's not just upward that prayer leads us, but it also leads us outward, out of ourselves, to others, to what God desires, to what pleases God, to what God's heart is. So just there, do you, I hope you feel it and see it. Prayer is truly a church's anti-gravity suit, leading us upward and outward, not, not allowing us to turn inward, where we just... Look at ourselves as a church. So let's consider those together today. Let's let's not just consider them in terms of our passage, but let's also consider them in terms of the character of our church. First up, prayer leads us upward in God-centered worship. Prayer leads us upward in God-centered worship. So here we have somewhat of an answer to what kind of church are we to be? Well, the praying kind. How are we to be the church? Well, we're to be the church by praying. And we started off our series by looking at the significance of the church. And we see the significance of the church. It's evident in the character of the church. So we, let me go back to the opening passage to our series. It's kind of at the heart of 1 Timothy. It's really kind of at the heart of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It's kind of talking about what Paul aims to do in these three letters. 1 Timothy 3.15 says this, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. If there was a singular verse to summarize those three letters in the New Testament, this is it. He's writing so as to help these churches know how to go about being the church in its significance, its structure, and its character. So how ought the church conduct themselves? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 is a, is a unique section, a whole section, where Paul is instructing on how this matters in the life of the church. And where does he begin? He begins here with prayer. God's household is to be a praying one. 
And Paul urges this. So let's, let's follow Paul's urging of the church and see that prayer leads a church upward. Prayer leads a church upward. Once again, back at verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Here we see a, a church being instructed to be centered on God instead of self, instead of church. We find four aspects of prayer mentioned. There are plenty of others. This isn't everything. This isn't an exhaustive list about prayer. But it does give us to understand, enough to understand the God-centered nature of prayer. Four things were mentioned. Supplications. What is that? Well, supplications are asking God to meet very specific and timely and tangible needs within the life of a church or community. Prayers. It's just a general, broad statement that conveys a regular dependence on God. So a church is to be a praying church, asking God to meet very tangible needs, and is to be doing that on the regular. Thirdly, we see intercessions. These are urgent appeals on behalf of others. Difficult things are happening in our lives. Do we bring them inward, turn inward on them, or do we bring them out and up to God on behalf of each other? And then fourthly, thanksgivings. Thanksgivings, interesting thing to add in this list, isn't it? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, we, we get a sense of those. But then all of a sudden, thanksgivings, these are, these are acknowledging God is over everything and thanking him for the way he will answer. When we look at that, those four kinds of things listed, it gives us three very important dispositions about a praying church. The first is this, that prayer in a church that's going to have that as its character, prayer is regular. Prayer is the regular response. Prayer is the impulse of a church characterized by prayer. It's the natural impulse to the situations and circumstances of life. It's to go upward with it. What this list and the subsequent focus tells us is that there are all kinds of prayers for all kinds of things with all kinds of reasons. This is to be a regular characteristic of the life of God's people gathered together is prayer. Now we think about our time allotted on a Sunday morning and you might say to yourself, well, pastor, prayer is there, but it's not there to the same length of time as, say, the singing or the preaching, depending on the sun, Sunday, the preaching especially? Well, it's not just simply when we're gathered together corporately, but when we are gathered together in smaller groups, when we are together on one-on-one, or when we're in each other's homes, or when we're in a life group, or when we're in a, a class, or when we're sitting at a table with a couple of chairs. That prayer is the regular response of God's people. Upward. With the things that are on our hearts and on our lives. Caring for one another. From this list we see that prayer is to be regular. But then we also see that prayer is to be corporate. 
Paul urges the church to conduct itself as a household of prayer. Again, at the heart of the, these three letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, is this call to, to better understand how we as the church are to conduct ourselves as the church. And that prayer is something that is to be together on the regular. Prayer is something to be together on the regular. So we've incorporated some of that in our worship service. Our elders take turns coming up here and leading us in prayer. Taking the time to, to, to lift up the things that we are facing together as a church. Situations, circumstances in our lives. That that's an important component of our time together. We're not just filling the hour, if you will. We're coming to the throne of grace and getting comfort and grace in our time of need. We also occasionally have prayer nights, and we actually have one scheduled in a few weeks on Sunday, November 12th. In the evening, we reconvene, and we spend time reading the Word and praying. Praying for these things that are going on in our world, for these things going on in our lives. We're sometimes just simply praying, oh God, give us a better sense of who you are and what you're like. This is good for us, because if we don't do that, we'll just find the gravitational pull to inward to be really strong. We just navel gaze at ourselves rather than going upward to God. So from that list, we get a sense that prayer is to be regular, prayer is to be corporate, and then lastly, prayer is to be God-centered. There's something interesting that Paul does here. He links the regular corporate prayer with thanksgiving. And what is he doing? He's, he's centering their affections and their hope on God. He's not talking about their circumstances changing. Well, the things that they're praying being answered specifically to their hopes, he's just wanting them to be centered on God with their affections and their hope. He does this in other places. The Apostle Paul does, who wrote 1 Timothy. You may know uh, Philippians 4.6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He also says in Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. This idea of, of prayer and thanksgiving married together is, is to help center our thoughts and our affections, our very hope on God. It's actually lifting us up over the circumstances that we're praying about to resting our hope in the character and nature of who God is and what he is like. One scholar put it this way, when petition is grounded in thanksgiving, God and not self-interest becomes the focus. Can you be thankful to God when you cry out for relief? Let that question hang there for a second. Can you be thankful to God in the midst of crying out, where are you? Can you be thankful to God when you cry out, how long? Can you be thankful to God when you cry out, what's next? The work of prayer in the heart of a believer and then the character of a church is to lead us upward. 
that even in the midst of those very things that make us cry out those very words, our hearts are being drawn upward beyond the gravitational pull of to be turned inward. Upward to see who God is and what God is like. Prayer, prayer plays a crucial role in this for us, individually and collectively. So we want to be praying people and is to lead us upward to God. But also notice it's taking us out of ourselves and that we are to pray for all kinds of people. Prayer for all kinds of people. Let's look at the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. So prayer, be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The church is to regularly pray for all kinds of people, and this is followed up with some very specific reasons. First of all, for all people, it says, which is really a way of saying all kinds of people, not every single person. Nobody could do that. The point of it is the all kinds of people. It means no one is to be excluded from being lifted up to the throne of grace. No one is to be excluded from pleading God's will be done in their lives. That we don't go about excluding people from the God of all comfort and the God of all grace. And so we are to pray for all kinds of people. And then Paul turns the attention to those in places of authority in a culture or society. He says, first of all, pray for the kings. Those are in the highest of the authorities. Now, keep in mind at the time of this letter, that most likely would have been the emperor. And that emperor was most likely Nero. And so for those who are unfamiliar, Nero was an emperor who did not like Christianity and maliciously tormented Christians. It allowed sporadic persecution to happen throughout the Roman Empire, and it eventually gave way to a very systematic persecution. And here, the Apostle Paul is calling the church who knows that's the heart and the character of the king they're supposed to be praying for, that they are to go upward in God in prayer with supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving for kings. But that's just, Paul's just picking up where the Old Testament left off. And Jeremiah, he's a prophet, and he's, he's bringing the word to bear on the people who were in exile. They were no longer in Jerusalem. Foreign powers came in and overran um, Israel and took people away. They were in exile, foreign places. And And Jeremiah 29, verse 7, gives instructions to God's people in those foreign places. And it says this, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for those, even those that would be against The prayer has an anti-gravity component because I'm telling you the gravity pull is like, hey, these people are being mean to me. They're being mean to us. They're against us. The only thing I'm going to be praying is, is that God would bash their teeth in, right? Here we're instructed to pray for their welfare. He continues, he says, for all those in high places or high positions. 
You can think of those as like regional and local leaders whose position and authority have a profound impact on how the church gets to live out its life. They have a profound impact on the cultural context for the church. So we're to pray for these things. Now, why? Why pray for all kinds of people and for kings and for those in high positions? Well, it's important to see the so that, because that answers it. So that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life. Now, this doesn't mean that the aim of life is to live out some sort of Wendellberry version of a tucked away on a small farm in the hills of Tennessee kind of life. If you do, good for you. Rather, what, what this means is to pray for societal and cultural conditions to be peaceful so that the church can go about its worship, work, and witness. Pray for the culture around you to allow you to be the church in worship and work and witness. Now, yes, God can use persecution to expand the church. We see that in the book of Acts. But let's not romanticize that. That's not something we should want. Our impulse should be to pray for the places in which we live so that the church can go about making much of Jesus and worship, work, and witness. And if persecution comes, that God would give us the strength of faith and resolve and joy to follow him in the face of such adversity. But let's not idealize or romanticize that. There's a wing in Christendom that does, and it boggles my mind. Yes, God uses persecution to expand the church, but the God-centered prayers of his people are to be about praying for the context that the church can go about being the church. Again, we're to pray for the welfare of the place in which we live. It will be good for us to be the church in. So we want to pray in a way uh, for all kinds of people, for kings and for those in high positions so that we can go about living out our lives as a church, making much of God. And to do that, godly and dignified is what he says next. Both those words, godly and dignified, speak to devotion. The idea of devotion. Devotion in the life of a church. First of all, godly is devotion of heart. And in fact, it's, it's actually pulled from, in the Old Testament, an idea of sort of a religious devotion, of a religious worship and religious affection. So the idea is that of worship. It's devotion of heart and worship of God. That we would be a praying people so that our hearts can grow with affection and worship of God. And then dignified speaks to the way that we live, to our life, to the character of our life. And that we are growing in godliness, growing in Christ-likeness. So both our hearts and our manner of living would begin to reflect that who we've set our thoughts and affections on. So hopefully you see even here how prayer is indeed an anti-gravity suit for that inward pull to obsess about ourselves. It's taking us out of ourselves, up and out of ourselves, and placing our thoughts and our affections in the very character of our living, dependent upon God. Both ideas of devotion, whether it's of heart and worship, or of life and our character, are communicating that God is worthy and God is worth it. So putting these together, we see that the regular, corporate, God-centered prayers of the church are to include the hopes of a cultural context 
in which the church can display the worthiness and the goodness and the grace of God through worship, through its community, and through its mission. So rather than being sucked into thinking about it's an us versus them mentality, the church is actually to be leading an upward focus. God, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. Strengthen our hearts as we follow you. Help others come to know how great you are. That was our regular, corporate, God-centered character. We pray like that. We certainly pray for each other and the things that we are facing. The kinds of things from a hurting back to a job loss to illness to fear that we struggle with and so forth. And we should pray for those things. But not just those things. Ever been in a class or a small group or with a bunch of others and it's time to pray and it's usually a physical ailment that makes the list? Yes, pray for them. But does, is there ever anything on the list that says, hey, can we just pray that our church would love Jesus more? Do we pray, hey, can I, let's just pray that our church would like reflect more and more of like the fruit of the Spirit. We have such a profound privilege that we get to do that. That is to mark our life as a church. We don't want to just be so focused on these things that cause us to turn inward because we'll just be living in an echo chamber. We'll, we'll be settled into the cul-de-sac of Western Christianity and not ever think that God could do something amazing because our lives are fairly comfortable. We sound like the little kid in The Incredibles. I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. And prayer is taking us up and out of that. It's helping us see God is big and He's great and He's awesome. He can do far greater things than we could ever possibly dream. And this is to mark the character of the church. Prayer leads us upward. God-centered worship. And it also leads us outward. It leads us outward on gospel-focused mission. Why be a praying church? The answer is the gospel. Why be a praying church? Because of the good news of Jesus Christ. That as we pray, and that brings us upward and outward of ourselves, as we are fighting against the gravitational pull inward, our lives are being changed. Our hearts are being changed. Changed hearts then lead to changed mission. What we just described in prayer leads us upward in God-centered worship, and that will indeed change us. It, one, shows we are changed, and then it shows we will continually be changed as we, as we continue to soar up with our gra- gra- anti-gravity suits on. And as we collectively grow at seeing God as worthy and worth it in our hearts, guess what? Our mission, our aim, our pursuits will change. And we'll reflect that too. So Paul then immediately connects the regular, corporate, God-centered, praying church to God's heart with the gospel. He goes from calling the church to be regularly together, centered on God in its prayer, to then joining God on his gospel mission. 
And look at verses 3 and 4. It says this. This, everything we just read and we're considering, is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's walk through these two verses. First of all, this is good. What is the this referring to? What is the this that is called good? Well, it's the whole scope of verses 1 and 2. It's that regular corporate, God-centered praying would characterize the church. And with the church, praying for societal conditions to help it make much of God and His grace. That is called good. Not only is it called good, but it's pleasing then in the sight of God. That's the next phrase. It's pleasing in the sight of God. So this, that's called good, the church that's growing in prayer is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. It's, you know, God does all that he pleases. So God's pleasure is connected to God's purpose, God's plans, God's promises. And the church gets excited about who God is, starts to get excited about what God wants to do and why God wants to do it. And so prayer that leads us upward to God also leads us outward. There's an interesting moment in Ezekiel, which is found in the Old Testament. Ezekiel is a prophet in a period of time in which the church is, the people of God have gone bonkers. They've abandoned God and enemies have come in and have, have crushed them and have exiled them. And Ezekiel talks about the judgment behind that, but also gives these promises of restoration that will come. It's a very highly symbolic and intense and and overwhelming book in the Old Testament. So a lot to absorb and take in. In the midst of it, there's a moment in Ezekiel 20, verse 41. This is described. God speaking through his prophet. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. When I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. This is a, imagery is filled with language that's sort of of priestly worship um, activity that's happening. It's a prayerful sort of context. And in that, a people are being rescued and transformed, and from that are displaying to the world around God's good pleasure. Our prayer as the church is a part of that picture. A praying church, upward, focused on God, outward, shaped by God's pleasure, is living that out is an extension of what God has promised to do. It's part of his pleasure. The more our hearts are for God, the more we want to do the things that are God's pleasure. Next phrase is not only that it's pleasing in the sight of God, but then we see God described as God our Savior. There are many true and glorious things that could be said of God. Don't miss the fact that it's our Savior. So again, the collective corporate sense, us, us, gathered together, our Savior. And then it's Savior that... Focus on who God is and what he is like and what he has done. God has sovereignly and graciously saved sinners and will continue to do so through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Jesus, who lived a life that we could not live and died a death that we deserve, 
who overcame an enemy we could never beat to give us a righteous standing with God we could never earn. And that all who turn to, trust in, look to Jesus, saying that his life, death, and resurrection are sufficient. All, all kinds of people will be saved. That, that God, our Savior. God who does that, who did that in your life and doing that in other lives for all kinds of people in our community. We pray believing that that's our God. Our, our prayer is just more like wishes. Just that empty wish. You throw it out there like it's a quarter going into a fountain. God is the one who saves. That's a miracle. A miracle happens every day. Do we pray like that? That we believe that? And then we see here, desires all people to be saved. Similarly to like when we were looking at earlier, that we are to pray for all people, all kinds of people. That means all kinds of people. Desires all kinds of people to be saved. So it doesn't mean everyone will be saved. That's a bad thing. That's called universalism. It's also impossible because not everybody's saved. That leads us into another predicament. If we believe it means all people are going to be saved, the other predicament is then God wants to save everybody, but he can't. Hopefully you can see the problem with that. If you have a God who wants to do something, but he can't do it, then you don't have a God. So clearly, it doesn't mean all people are going to be saved. It means all kinds of people from all kinds of places, from all kinds of time. There's no restrictions on from whom and from where God will save. None. Jesus said as much. It's a clarifying statement, although it leads to a whole other kind of slew of questions. But he says in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, all of them, every single one. And whoever comes to me, I will, not, I will never cast out. God's people will be saved. God's desires for all of his people to be saved. We pray, believing boldly with this gospel focus, God will do these things. And lastly, we see it come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, salvation is also understood as knowledge of the truth. Again, back to what we were saying at the beginning, 1 Timothy 3.15. It says, if I am delayed, you will know how to... People ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The truth about who God is and what God is like and what God has done in the gospel. We are the pillar. We're holding that up and holding that out. Do we pray like we're holding that up and holding that out, that people will come to know the truth of the gospel? I love how uh, John Stott um, put it. Now he has words he uses here that could be very triggering. Keep in mind he wrote this in a different era. Uh, But what he says here is incredibly insightful. He says, Our exclusive faith leads necessarily to our inclusive mission. That's what he's saying. He says, We believe very specifically about this good news of Jesus Christ. And we go out everywhere with it. No place, no person is to be withheld the good news of this very specific Um, faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so the more that our hearts are turned upward and centered on God, the more our lives are transformed to go outward with the good news of what roped us in and can bring others to know him too. All of this is to mark the church. The anti-gravity suit of prayer needs to be worn with great regularity in the life of a church. And this prayer leads us upward in God-centered worship and outward on God-focused mission. Without prayer, and without this focus on prayer, we will turn in on ourselves as a church. And so I say, let us be a people who endeavor to pray, to pray, to pray regularly, to pray together, to pray centered on God. Hearts are being changed as we see just how worthy and worth it he is. And may we be a people who also change and want others to come to know his goodness and grace. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would do this work in us and help us to see that this is your pleasure. You desire this for your people. You desire this for the world. That your people would live out what you have called us to be. You've called us to be a people of prayer. And so would you move our hearts to do that? And would you help us to be all the more intentional to pray together about things great and small, bringing them to you upward in worship? And may we have our perspectives and our purposes transformed as our hearts um, take in more of your goodness and grace. May we be a people eager to see others come to know you in the same way. In Jesus' name, amen.